please rise to your feet as we read God's Word together. We're going to be reading from Psalm 100. And as you're standing and as you're turning into your Bibles or your apps or whatever, just so you know where we're headed today in the next few weeks, last week we asked the question, what does it mean to live a thankful life or a life of gratitude? And today we're going to be asking and hopefully answering the same question. What does it mean to live a thankful life and to have a life of gratitude? Hear the reading of God's Word from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, You have told us, and as we see, the grass withers, it fades away, the leaves on the trees fall and blow into the wind, but you tell us your word will stand forever. So uphold that promise to us today. Hold your word forever in our hearts. May that word shape us, may it mold us to be more like Jesus Christ. It's in his strong name that we pray all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I, I wonder if we can have a, a moment of full disclosure with one another. Can we take a moment to be honest with who we really are? So the question that I have is, How many of you, at one point, have eaten dessert before dinner? How many of you have fast-forwarded the movie to see how it ends as you're in the middle of the movie? How many of you have jumped to the end of the book before you finished the book? Me too. I like dessert a lot. I remember the first time I read The Hounds of Baskerville by... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I was absolutely captivated. It just it sucked me in, and it was my first foray into the wonderful world of Sherlock Holmes and his sidekick, Watson. I was enamored with the, the, the reasoning and deduction that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle gave to Sherlock Holmes and his ability to navigate through what is seemingly mindless detail, but yet he's able to pull out all kinds of useful information. This story, The Hounds of Baskerville, is no different. The twists and turns as Sherlock Holmes finds a cane that was left in his office and how he deduced various things just based upon a man's cane. I was captivated. It twists and turns. And I remember thinking as probably a 12, 13-year-old boy, why is it called The Hounds of Baskerville? I'm not quite sure. So I, I had to skip to the end. Well... I'm going to let you do a lot of the reading. If you haven't read The Hounds of Baskerville, you need to go and do it. But the story twists and turns. And what you need to know, all I'm going to tell you right now, is that the hound has an important part to play in the story. But it's also about this family called the Baskervilles. So if you skip to the end, you may find the answer that the hound has an important part of the story. Hence, the Hounds of Baskerville. But there's only one hound in the story, so maybe it's a play on words. You're going to have to find out for yourself. 
Go and read The Hounds of Baskerville very quickly. I think you'll be entranced, just as I would. Go read the story. So this morning, I want to do something similar. I want to jump to the end of the story. I want to eat dessert first as we go into Psalm 100 here today. I want to look at Psalm 100 from the bottom up. I actually think that the author of this psalm, who wants the congregation to be singing this psalm of praise, to have the end at the beginning. Even though it's at the end, I really do think that there's something to be said that the end is the dessert. And we're going to eat it first. But here's what I want us to see. This psalm, Psalm 100, uses kingly language all over the place. It's talking about a king. It's talking about a coronation. It's talking about making a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So it's, it has this imagery of fanfare, of hundreds of thousands of trumpets blowing a fanfare for a king. And this is no ordinary king. We see in verse 1 that this king is Lord over all the earth. There are no boundaries or borders to this king's kingdom. This is the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the king of kings. And who is gathered? Simply his serfdom? No. All the people of the earth are gathered around. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So this is a corporate and a global acknowledgement of the king of kings who is Lord over everything. You see, this is a special kind of king. It's no ordinary little K king, but a capital K king. A king over little K kings. And capital L Lord over little L lords. You see, it's this king of kings and this lord of lords who is worthy to be praised. Who is worthy for us to make a joyful noise. Why is he worthy to be praised? Well, that's where we need to jump to the end of Psalm 100, isn't it? Turn back, if you have your Bibles open, turn back there, or flip in your apps to turn that back on again. And let's look at verse 5 briefly here of Psalm 100. So let's eat our dessert first. <laughs> the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Admittedly, there's so much in one verse that we could preach many, 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 many sermons just on verse 5. But I only have time for this one, and there's a lot to get to. On the surface, it means God is good. Well, what does that mean? Wow, we, we, could, we could spend a lot of time just in diving into the complexities of God's goodness. Where I want to take us this morning is the place where verse 5 and verse 1 converge, or, or where they meet. And maybe you can even think about it in space, where, where, where verse 1 and verse 5 kind of meet in the middle. Or where they come into the presence of the Lord together. It's important for us to grasp the beauty of the language that's happening here in these two verses, in verse 5 and in verse 1, and really the entirety of Psalm 100. We have a saying in the Christian world that we believe that the the Bible, Scripture, is inerrant. We've all heard that. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. What do we mean by that? That the Scripture is God-breathed, and there is no errors in it. And we believe that that inerrancy is found in the original text, meaning the original languages of the Greek and the Hebrew. And as we translate things out of the Greek and the Hebrew, we do lose some things. We don't lose truth. 
We don't lose content. We don't lose the intent of Scripture, nor do we lose the Word of God. But what we do lose at times is the beauty of the language, is the beauty of the Hebrew and the beauty of the Greek. Especially in Hebrew, there's so much poetry and beauty in the, in, in the way it's constructed. And here in Psalm 100, it's, it's very much the same thing. And as we read it in English, it's still a glorious psalm. It's wonderful to behold. But we've lost a little bit of the glory, not, not the glory, but the beauty of what we find here. As English-speaking people, we read things like this. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. That's, that's verse 1. Let's just stop right there. We know that our Jewish friends back in the times of Scripture and even today, hold the name of the Lord in very high regard. Yeah? They don't even utter His name. They don't utter Yahweh. They don't even spell it out in the Hebrew language because they hold it in such high regard. What we find here in Psalm 100 is that very thing happening. The psalmist says, make a joyful noise to Yahweh to the name that doesn't even come onto our mouths. This is who we make our joyful noise to. We see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and that should give us a hint, but it's still not the same thing as we would understand our Jewish friends to do. We don't even utter the name of the Lord. We don't even say Yahweh, but here it is. The psalmist is saying, make a joyful noise to Yahweh. Everybody do this. All the earth make a joyful noise to this God. Here in Psalm 100, the name Yahweh is used, and it is used to make a joyful noise. And then it says to enter in his presence with singing. Here, an entire congregation of the hosts of the people of the world are making a joyful noise and singing the unnameable name of God. And the beckon is to come. He beckons all of the earth to come. And where does he say to come? Into his presence with singing. So now I want you to have this idea of of Yahweh, right? The name that our Jewish friends don't even begin to utter. The reverence that that holds. The power that that holds. And the psalmist says, come into Yahweh's presence with singing and a joyful noise. So here's where we miss a little bit more of the beauty of the Hebrew language as we translate it into English. It's telling us to come into his presence. Have you ever been in the presence of someone that's important or famous? I remember when I was in high school, the Pope, yes, the Pope, came to Denver, Colorado. And it was a really, really big deal and I remember me and my friends, we wanted to see what the big deal was about. So we, we went down to the place where the Pope was going to be in the parade just because we wanted to see what it was all about. And downtown Denver was packed. I, there, everyone from the Rocky Mountain region, I think, had to be in downtown Denver that day, not just in Colorado, but everywhere. I'd never seen it so busy in my entire life. We eventually made our way down into the place where the parade route was going to be, and we were kind of in the vicinity of where his motorcade was going by. He was in that enclosed car, coach thing, whatever you want to call it. But I was nowhere near the Pope. I was probably 10, 15, 20 people deep. 
The Pope had no idea I was there. He didn't even know I existed. But I could say with all honesty that I was in the presence of the Pope on that day. Correct? We could say that. I was in the presence of the Pope. I was in the presence of someone who many people hold in very high regard. So is that what the psalmist is saying here? Here is Yahweh. Come into his presence. Are you supposed to be 15, 20 rows deep? No, what the Hebrew language says, it's not only saying come into his presence, but it's saying face to face. When we come into his presence according to the way the Hebrew is constructed and the words that, the words that is used there, it's not just simply, hey, I'm in the general vicinity of the Lord, but he calls me to enter into his presence and he knows me and he sees me face to face. Make a joyful noise. Enter into his presence. Enter into this relationship. Enter into looking the Lord God, Yahweh, in his eyes as he stares back into your eyes. This is just verse 1. This is what we have here before us. That's something altogether different, I would say, than just come into the presence of the Lord. When we come into the presence of the Lord, we come before him face to face. And this is where the convergence of verse 5 and verse 1 meet. They meet at the face of Yahweh. They meet at the presence, standing before the face of the Lord. Oh my. Imagine that you are there now. That Yahweh is looking at you intimately in the eyes, face to face. Because that's what it means to be in his presence. It then is his goodness, his steadfast love and faithfulness that allows you and me to not only be in the presence of the Lord, but to look him in the eye and him in yours, to be face to face. Because without that steadfast love, without that faithfulness, there is no way we enter into his presence. We are cast out in our sin and misery. But because of his steadfast love, because of his faithfulness to you and to me and to all generations, he says, come, make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise with singing because that's what it's all about. That in his grace and mercy, he looks us in the eye and he welcomes us into his presence not because of what we have done, not because we're so great and excellent and we can really sing great, Some of us can, some of us cannot. But because of what he has done and in his love and faithfulness. In other words, we're in his presence because of his goodness. And in that goodness, he provides us the ability to live lives of gratitude. To live lives of thankfulness. So with this is our foundation, let us answer that question further. What does it mean to live a thankful life? Psalm 100 gives us some of the answers. What does it mean to live a thankful life? It means to be joyful. Now, if you were here last week or you listened to it, what we found last week was that doesn't mean that we are just tigger. We bounce around the room with smiles on our faces all the time, being joyful and rejoicing and celebrating. Nothing's ever bad or wrong. That's not what this is saying. It's not what it said last week. That's not what it's saying here. 
rejoicing and being joyful means, or always, is to be in Christ. To be in the presence of, before the face of the Lord. This is how we're to be joyful. We're joyful because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness to all generations, including you and me. And he's brought us into his presence. He's brought us into face-to-face relationship with him. That should cause us to be joyful. That should cause us to change our lives and to have our lives changed. But then I do, however, want to explore more about this kind of joy of what is being demonstrated for us here in Psalm 100. Let us remember again the setting that we find ourselves here in Psalm 100. The setting is largely kingly language, and it's a scene that is to be communicated of this king's coronation or something to that end, where a king is being honored, where a king is being celebrated. There's an enormous crowd, like more people than you could ever imagine. All the people of the earth, imagine all the people gathered around this king, this throne. They're proclaiming the goodness, the faithfulness, and the love of this kind of king. I would imagine that that is some kind of noise. If you were to go to the Cowboys game this afternoon and they would be lucky enough to score a touchdown, the crowd would cheer. And it's really, really loud in AT&T Stadium. And that's about 100,000 people. Now imagine all of the earth surrounding the throne of this king, singing his goodness, singing his love, singing his faithfulness to this king. That's a joyful noise. That is a wonderful scene to behold. This is the context in which we find ourselves. But when does this, when does a king, any king, this king or any other king, receive this kind of adulation, this kind of praise? Generally, there are two reasons why a king would receive this type of adulation, this type of honor. One would be his coronation service, the day he becomes king, the crown is placed on his head. There's usually a large crowd gathered, and he's praised because they give him honor and glory as their rightful king. The other time that a king may be honored like this is when? When he has won a victory in battle. So this is where I want to land here this morning. We have seen in the, in the Hebrew language that this is not just any kind of king. It's Yahweh. It's the big K king and the big L Lord. You see, this king has already been coronated. He's worn his crown from eternity past. He wears it now, and he will wear it for eternity in the future. So it can't be for the scene that, okay, we're just now crowning this king as king of kings and lord of lords. No, he's held that title forever and ever and ever and ever. So why have they gathered here now? Because of his victory. Because there's a victory over his enemies. And we know that because it's this delineation of all the earth. It's not just all the people of Texas, the boundary of Texas, gather around the throne. It's not all the people of New York or Canada or Mexico. It's all the people without borders or boundaries. He is the Lord. He is the King. There's something even more special about this victory, however. This is not a one-time celebration. This happens all the time. There's something even more special about this victory. The psalmist invites the audience into the presence or before the face of the Lord at all times because the Lord is victorious 
forever. There is no end to his victory. Do you see that? Make a joyful Lord, noise to the Lord all the earth. Sing. Come into his presence with singing. This is what we are to do at all times. The psalmist invites us into this very ceremony. When I think of heaven, I think about a lot of things. I don't think that it's me sitting on a cloud playing a harp all day, every day. That's not what I think of heaven. It's not sitting in this cloud in an eternal worship service. But what I do think about is the throne of heaven and what that might look like. I do think about the chorus of angels. I do think about the creatures that surround the throne, as we see in a number of different places in Revelation. But the one thing that always comes to my mind when I think about heaven and specifically the throne of heaven are the words that are said around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You see, this is proclaiming the reign of this kind of king and his victory from eternity past, his victory today and his victory tomorrow. This is what it means to celebrate this king. This is what it means to be a part of his kingdom, is to give him this glory. This is what it means to be joyful, to understand his victory over his enemies and our enemies. When we think about why Jesus died and rose again, what do we think he accomplished? Certainly, he defeated death. Amen. Absolutely, he did. But there's something else to celebrate as well. It's not only that Jesus conquered death, but we're told that Jesus conquered sin and death. So as much as we celebrate the fact that Jesus conquered death, he also conquers sin. That means for us, he conquers the struggles that we have with sin, even here and now today. He's conquered our temptation for gossip. He's conquered our temptations for control and power and lust and pride. What this says, these things do not define you. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death. Because in Christ, we are new creations. In his steadfast love and his faithfulness, he draws us into his presence as the victor king over sin and death. So we enter into his presence with joy. Because his banner of victory goes before us. If that then is true, then something else follows directly behind. If joy is who we are as we enter into the presence of the Lord, and we are joyful people because of the Lord's victory in our life, then something else follows directly behind. I follow a YouTube channel, and uh, it's about a family in Minnesota who the channel just documents this family's life as 
farmers. It's a, they're a pretty successful farming family. Still a family business. It's not one of these corporate things, but they are a family business, but it's just kind of a fun channel that I like to watch. They usually post, this time of the year, he posts quite a bit because they're in the middle of harvest. And it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting. Not all of you are going to find it interesting. Maybe some of you will. I think it's kind of fun. Anyway, one of the reasons why I like this particular channel is because these guys are always introducing new technology. And if you like big boy toys, there's nothing better than really big tractors. Tractors are just cool. I don't care how, just, tractors are cool. They're powerful, they're big, they're expensive, and they're just really fascinating pieces of engineering and technology. But these people are always purchasing new equipment or they have agreements with their, their dealers to, to demo new and exciting equipment. But if you watch this and you watch their tractors, rarely are their tractors just driving around without an implement on the back. That wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't make them any money if they just drove their tractors around town. It doesn't make any sense. But, so what do they do? They hook up a plow. They hook up a planter. They hook up a grain cart because this is how they make their living. It's supposed to do that. So they hook up these tractors, they hook up the plow, and they drive through the fields, and they do what a plow does, and it turns over the soil and these kind of things. But the plow has to follow the tractor, doesn't it? For the plow to work, the tractor needs to pull it. The plow can't plow without the tractor. It would be quite funny if the plow tried to pull the tractor you wouldn't get very far, and you would lose all kinds of money. So it's easy to say that something must follow something else. And in this case, the plow follows a tractor, and something else follows joy in our scenario here this morning. You see, the tractor's designed to work, and that means to pull this plow or grain cart. The victory is of the king of kings is similar. The victory of the Lord of Lords is similar. Rarely, if ever, is it empty. The victory just doesn't wander around the streets all by itself. Something is pulled behind it. Joy is rarely, if ever, empty-handed. What comes directly behind victory and joy is what we see in the second half of verse 1. What do we see there? What comes after victory, what comes out of our joy is to what? Serve the Lord with gladness. Because of this victory, because of our joy, we can't help but serve. We have to because the tractor is pulling us. If the tractor is victory and joy and we're the plow, it's pulling us. Victory and joy pulls our service. If we get it flipped around, it's a mess and it just doesn't quite work. If we serve in order because I hope to get victory and joy out of my service, the plow's going to get stuck in the mud because it doesn't have the engine to pull it. You see, the engine that pulls our service is the Lord's victory and in his steadfast love and faithfulness to us. And the fact that we are given joy because of that victory, now we serve and we serve how? Begrudgingly? Uh. Man, really? We serve with gladness. There is eagerness and willingness to serve because of what this joy does for us. 
And whichever form of service that is, whether you're the plow, the planter, the fertilizer, the grain cart, whatever the service is, deacon, elder, nursery worker, Sunday school teacher, someone who picks up sticks on a cold Saturday morning. We serve with gladness. But if it's flipped, service is anything but glad. Service is anything but easy. If we serve because we want to somehow get joy, you will never accomplish that. If we serve for acceptance, You've got to plow before the tractor. If you serve because you're trying to obtain some kind of recognition, you've got to plow before the tractor. It's really hard for a plow to plow in front of the tractor. Service is the outpouring of joy. Service is how we respond to the Lord's victory. Service is how we go about our lives because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is the command that we do serve with gladness because of his steadfast love and faithfulness to you and to me. This is what the Lord has done for us. This is who we are. So then we are thankful that we have this proper perspective. How do we live a thankful life? We have a thankful life because we understand that we've been given this joy. We've been given this victory. And now we're excited to serve. We're excited to serve our friends and our neighbors. We're excited to love. We're excited to care and to listen and to be compassionate because this is what the Lord has done for me. And because he's done that for me, what wouldn't I do for that king? Because he's given everything to me. He's given me his life. He's died in my place. He's conquered my sin. He's conquered my death. This is cause for joy. This is cause for celebration. Would I not then love him with all of my heart? Would I not then love my neighbor as myself? Certainly. Because we serve behind the victory of Yahweh himself. We serve behind the joy that Jesus gives to us. We serve behind his steadfast love and his faithfulness to us. And the last thing to answer, how do we live a thankful life? We live a thankful life in joy. We live a thankful life in service. But we also live a thankful life in knowing. In knowing something. It's here where we tie all of these things together. It's here in the middle in verse 3 where we tie all these things together. How do we live a thankful life? How do we live a life of gratitude? We know. We know the most fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian. We know that when we come into the presence of the victor king, We come before him face to face. Why? Because we're his. 
If someone asks you, what is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? There's some of us that might throw out all kinds of theology, all kinds of doctrine, all kinds of Bible verses anyway. All kinds of stuff. But what it means to be a Christian is Psalm 100, verse 3. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. It is He that brings us to Himself. We know that we come into the presence of the victor king. We come before him face to face because we are his. It is he who made us. It is he who saves and saved us. It is he who sustains us. It is he who justifies us. It is he who sanctifies us. It is he who loves us. It is he who... On and on and on. It's he who satisfies us. It's he who glorifies us. It's he who fills us with himself because we are his. The most glorious part of living a thankful life, a life of gratitude, is knowing Jesus. If you want an easy button, there it is. It's to know Jesus. And more importantly than that, it's that he knows you and everything about you. And he still says, come. Come into my presence. But we forget, don't we? Jesus says that we are his sheep in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The thing about knowing is that we do forget. We forget that we are His, don't we? I do. We forget that He created us. I do. We forget that we're the sheep of His pasture. We forget that we're the plow and not the tractor. The thing about knowing is that Jesus does not forget And he doesn't ever forget knowing us. And so, how do we live thankful lives? We make a joyful noise in the presence of the Lord, the victor king. We make a joyful noise as we enter into his his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And so we, along with the psalmist, we give thanks and we bless his name forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks, and we bless your name forever and ever. We praise you for who you are and what you've done for us. We praise the fact that you have given us yourself, that you know us, and that you call us into your presence. And so, Lord, we ask you now to be present with us, as we celebrate just what it is that you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.